Hello, and welcome to the Crossway Christian Church Podcast. We are a church who wants to practice the way of Jesus together. If we can help you in any way, let us know. And be sure to check out our website at crosswaycc.org. Now let's get back to the podcast. Well, hey everyone, it is great to be with you, whether you're at home or here at the Pond or one of our other campuses or down at the Southern New Hampshire Rescue Mission. I'm Dave, and I'm just thrilled to be able to be back with you after taking some time away for a paternity leave. And it's good to see many of you, even if it's only half of your faces right now. It's still better than no faces. And so thank you for wearing masks today as we see increasing numbers spiking here in our area. We want to do everything we can to love our neighbors and to try and keep our doors open as long as we can but a lot's happened over these last couple of weeks while I've been, uh, been at home. And I just want to take a couple of moments to celebrate some of the great things that we've just seen God doing here in the life of our community. First off, after a several months long national search where we hired a search firm to help us find our next student pastor, we are thrilled to announce that we have hired Pastor Tommy Riley to be our new student pastor. I think he's here at the pond somewhere too. And we're grateful to have Tommy. There he is. Grateful to have him and his wife, Mary Ellen, and their son, Monroe, join us. So uh, our search firm interviewed around 65 people across the country for this role, and he was the number one candidate, and we were so thrilled to have him join our team and have his family join our church family. And we really believe some of the best days are ahead for our, our students and our families, and this is just another great way that we believe God continues to lead us to help fulfill a huge aspect of our mission, which is to raise up the next generation for Christ. And then we've done a lot of other things I've seen God do. We've broke ground on our outreach gardens here at our Pond Campus. We've had new groups get started. Our Trailhead course, which is to help people feel welcomed and known and needed and grown. If you're new to our Crossway community, has gotten off to a strong start. We've had some amazing services. I want to thank our volunteers and worship teams for putting together. Thanks to Pastor Dave Smith and Pastor Jake Scott for their awesome messages. And I also am so grateful for the take-home kits that our Kids Way team has put together to help us as parents really disciple our kids well. It's been such a gift to our family. And speaking of gifts to our family and kids, I want to show just a little picture of our new daughter, Avila. Uh, she is uh, someone I took of her right here, and she's just a sweetheart. Way easier than our boys were, at least at this point. Good chance she'll probably make up for that and during those teenage years, but we're going to enjoy it <laughs> while we can for now. And she's a month old already here today. I'd like to make this a little confession. I've had a little bit of a hard time telling people when she was born. She came two weeks early and was born on September 11th, 2020. And my wife wasn't sure if she was going into labor or not. I was kind of like, can you just hold on for maybe another 10 hours so we can make it to, uh, to September 12th? Not for my sake, and that's a tough thing to say to somebody who might be in labor, but for our daughter's sake. But as I've just kind of wrapped my mind around the reality that our daughter was born on arguably the saddest day of, of, of the year and the hardest year that many of us have ever lived through, I've been reminded of the need for us to practice a defiant joy. Defiant joy. I love Dallas Willard's definition of joy, which says that joy is a pervasive sense of well-being. It says that even though everything might not be okay, I'm still well off because God is with me and that I'm alive in his kingdom. And the thief wants to steal, kill, and destroy and try and take our joy away. But we can defy that as we remember the gift that God has given to us through his son and the life that he offers to us. And so 
September 11th, 2021 will be a day that we celebrate and rejoice, even though there's some sadness along with that. But this idea of joy, I think, really lies at the heart of what our series Good News Now is all about. For a lot of us as Christians or church people, we think about good news later. That when I, when Christ comes back or when I go to be with him forever in heaven, then I'm really going to experience good news. But Jesus says that the kingdom of God has come near. It's near to us now. His rule, his reign. And there's a way that we can experience the good news of what Jesus has done here and now, even in the midst of the toughest circumstances. And so this message is at the very heart of Jesus' most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And throughout the fall, we are looking at each of these revolutionary verses called the Beatitudes, which are really a gateway into Jesus, not only a Sermon on the Mount, but his whole life, his whole message, his, his whole reality. And I believe as we can understand the heart of the Beatitudes more and more for such a time as this, that they will open up great doorways for us to capture the way and the truth and the life of Jesus, maybe like we never have before. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're just going to look at one verse today, Matthew 5, 3. It's the first of these Beatitudes. I would have preached it earlier had our daughter not come a couple weeks early, but it's a great time for us to hear how there is good news even when we are going through some really difficult circumstances. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Can we say that out loud wherever we are? I want to help us just memorize this verse. We're going to unpack this verse, and I really hope that we experience this verse. So let's kind of get it on our lips. Let's kind of help it sink down into our hearts. Would you say this out loud wherever you are together now? Let's read it together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus begins these whole teachings here in the Beatitudes with the word blessed or blessed. Now in Greek, we shared this word with you a couple of weeks ago, and it's the word makarios, which really, if we were going to define it into English, would be about the highest level of well-being that is possible for a human being. The highest level. And now as Jesus addresses what's the highest level of well-being possible for a human being, he is doing something that is profound. He is entering into this great line of thinking and teaching of the greatest philosophers, the most wise sages throughout the ages. And now he is going to weigh in on some of the most fundamental questions that people have wrestled with throughout the ages. And he is going to give his take on how we can answer these great questions people have wrestled with. Here are the four questions. And the Beatitudes really tackles one of these four in a significant way. The first one is, what is reality? That's a question that still seems to resonate a little bit more with us these days, right? What is really real? What's fake news? You know, what, what if a politician says is true and what gets fact-checked? What's really real? And Jesus, throughout his gospels, throughout his teaching, says that what's really real is God and his kingdom. That the invisible world, the spiritual realm that we cannot see with and perceive with our senses is actually more real than our, our nation's more real than anything we can see right before us. And we're ultimately invited to live into that kingdom. Secondly, then he asks, what's the good life? Or who really has the good life? 
And Jesus answers, anyone who is alive in the kingdom of God, anyone who has entered into it, who stepped into this unseen reality where, where what God wants done is ultimately what's done. Third, who is a really good person? Think about that for a little while. Who is a really good person? And Jesus' answer to this question is that anyone who is pervaded with agape love, the self-giving, sacrificial love that characterizes the very essence of who God is. You're a good person not if you just stand on the right side of truth, or you're not just a good person if you kind of check all the right theological boxes in your belief system, but you're ultimately a good person, Jesus says, when love of God and love of neighbor pervades your life so much that, that love is just a disposition that characterizes who you are, not just isolated acts that you do. And then lastly, How do you become a really good person? Jesus would say, become my disciple or my apprentice. Watch how I've lived my life. And then you try and reflect that and model that. We've made our mission practicing the way of Jesus together because spiritual practices, when we try and do what Jesus himself has done, we get to participate in that life more and more. We'll talk some more about that here today. But question two, who is, has the good life? Is that the core of what Jesus is addressing when he lays down this word and says, here are the people who are blessed, here who's well off, here who really has the good life? So think for a moment about who you would say in our world, in our society, in your kind of relational circle might have the good life. The wealthy, the famous, people whose Online following is just blowing up. People that are secure, people in the South who can be outside a lot more. Who has the good life? A lot of times I used to think it was, yeah, the really athletic, the well-known. But after being the Bruins chaplain for the last five years, I can tell you, as much as I love those guys, none of them really have more joy than I do. Fame and material wealth and success isn't necessarily an indicator that you are going to have the good life. Years ago, actor uh, and comedian Jim Carrey, before he was playing Joe Biden, had this to say. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that that is not the answer. It's profound. Well, in the following verses, Jesus is going to defy these commonly held assumptions for who really has the good life. And before he does that, I imagine him saying, blessed are, and then letting a long pause kind of linger and hang out there. I imagine these hearers on top of this mountain who have climbed this long way to hear Jesus, this master teacher, weigh in on what the good life is, kind of leaning in, kind of hopeful and anticipating that maybe Jesus will say the way that they've chosen to live is in fact the good life. Now in Jesus' day, there were four key Jewish groups that all kind of said, We found the right way to be following God. We found the way to the good life. The first of those groups who were arguably members of them would have been part of Jesus' audience during this time were called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were all about the rules. They not only tried to follow God's law to the the, dot the I and cross the T's, but they added a whole other set of laws themselves And to those laws, they said, if we follow the rules, if we can just get people's external behavior to conform to a certain pattern, then the good life is going to be lived out here among us, and we will be able to experience that ourselves. 
Jesus often condemned those really ultra-religious people as being whitewashed tombs. Yeah, you're doing all the right things, but you're doing it in the wrong way. Your heart isn't changed. Yeah, you're making all these great sacrifices for God and going to church regularly and not missing a Sunday, not even an online Sunday. But boy, there's anger and meanness and your life's void of agape love. Those were the Pharisees and Jesus doesn't fit into that category. Then there were the Sadducees. The Sadducees said, hey, these Roman occupiers uh, and occupants in our land, if we coddle up to them, if we just kind of conform to their standards, then maybe the good life might be more possible. And they were seen as people who just compromised their integrity and their faith, kind of sellouts. Jesus certainly didn't fall into that category. Then, typically, when we go through some really stressful times, you've probably heard that phrase, fight or flight kind of response. Well, a couple of these groups had those responses. One was called the Essenes, and they took that flight kind of posture that we're going to just avoid and separate ourselves and get away from the public square and all of this nonsense, and we are going to just live out this faithful biblical life as best as we can away from the rest of the world. And then lastly, there was a group that just got incensed by what was happening in the world, and they were called the zealots, and they took that fight posture. We're going to just pick up our arms. We're going to do whatever it takes to overthrow these oppressors and take back what is ours, and not a lot of love necessarily in it because we are angry and upset, and that is justified any kind of behavior for us. We want what's rightfully ours. And now what's fascinating, as Jesus answers this question of who is really blessed, who is really well off, Jesus does not take sides. This way of the kingdom that Jesus is showing and modeling for us, it doesn't fit into the neatly constructed categories that people have built for themselves. Jesus is saying, no matter, even if you live in the best system that's been created, the best governing structure that's on the face of the earth, there are inherent limitations to it. And so don't over-identify with any party or group or system because the kingdom of God transcends all of that. And I want to show you a far better way. And so that's what Jesus, I believe, would say to us here and now. So now he, after this long pause of blessed are, he starts to lay out who has the good life in his mind. And he begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Imagine being one of the first hearers there. You were expecting to maybe see your way of life or your group or your vision of life to be the good life. And he says, the poor in spirit? Huh? Really? What could Jesus possibly mean by that? Well, a couple of weeks ago when I introduced the Beatitudes, I shared one of the interpretations for these is to see that the Beatitudes are not commandments necessarily to do something, but they're illustrations drawn from the immediate setting about how people that are beyond human hope can still experience the ultimate good life Because no matter our circumstances, God has still made a life with us available with him here and now through his grace. So that's one way of interpreting this. Jesus is not saying that you're blessed because you're poor in spirit, but even if you're poor in spirit, even if you've got nothing less, even if you're exasperated or exhausted or or just completely burned out, you can be well off as you unite your life with mine. So that's one approach. And I think both of these approaches are actually right in their interpretation. The second approach to understanding what in the world Jesus could mean by who is poor in spirit would be to see how 
in our own lives for us to recognize how we might be more poor in spirit than we realize now. How we might be more poor in spirit than we realize. See, as we recognize how there's an absence in our lives, then we make way for God's presence to fill us up more and more and to come alongside us. So let's try and unpack then, if we need to recognize how we're more poor in spirit than we realize, what does it really mean to be poor in spirit? Well, we know what poor means, right? It's being impoverished. Something's missing. Something's lacking. I'm stretched too thin. There's oppression in my life, perhaps. We're poor. And then spirit. This is kind of an interesting word that a lot of us don't maybe understand. We're not talking about capital S spirit, like Holy Spirit, like member of the Trinity. But we're talking about lowercase s spirit, which is about unbodily personal power that we have. In the Bible, this word spirit can be used interchangeably with maybe heart or will. And so spirit is this inner resource and strength that God has given to us. And if we're poor in spirit, then we're depleted in some way, burned out, exhausted, spent, not a whole lot left, not a lot of hope, not a lot of sight beyond the immediate difficulties of the moment that we're living in. Poor in spirit. How might you be? poor in spirit right now. After Jesus gives this big sermon, he encounters a man on the road. This man had leprosy, which was such an ostracizing disease in the ancient Near East. It's almost like testing positive today times about 100. So people kept way more than a six-foot radius around people like this. And this man is desperate, poor in spirit, at the end of his rope. And he sees Jesus. And so he pleads before him and, and just prostrates himself almost before the Lord and says, If you choose, you can make me well. Imagine the scene, this moment. Jesus sees this man, recognizes the deep need that he has, that there's nowhere else to turn or to look. And he stretches out his hand. He doesn't just speak a word to this man, but he breaks the social barriers set up for the day and touches this man. Imagine the last time this man would have been touched. And he says, I choose. Be made well. And this man, poor in spirit, encountered the kingdom of God and its healing power. Later on, next chapter in Matthew, there's a, a man named Jairus who is a kind of leader in the synagogue. And his daughter has just died. He's exasperated, hysterical, desperate to do absolutely anything to bring her back. And so he goes to Jesus. And Jesus says, yes, I will come and I will, I will lay hands on this little girl of yours. While he's making his way there, crowds are pressing in to see who Jesus is. And as people are pressing in on him, there's a woman who's been battling, bleeding for 12 years. She's spent all of her resources trying to find a cure. She has no hope, nowhere left to look or to go. And so she believes this ancient verse from one of the minor prophets that says, if I can just touch the cloak of his garment, there's healing in his wings. And perhaps if I can just touch Jesus, then maybe I will be made well. And so with this crowd pressing around Jesus, he feels this power go out from, in him, from, out from, from within him. And it goes out and he says, who touched me? And his followers are like, what are you talking about? There's a huge crowd of people around you. But then he stops. 
And he sees this woman in her desperate spot, recognized she had nothing else to look to. Jesus sees that she, in faith, reached out to touch him. And power went out from Jesus and healed her. And he says, take heart, daughter. Their family, she's not just any person. This desperate, poor in spirit person is a real woman with a real name. And now she is connected as a family member with Christ and says, your faith has made you well. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I wish every time when we were in that place of desperation that Jesus would actually just hear our prayers and, and do what we ask of him. But even in the Bible, we see that Jesus doesn't answer everyone's prayers the way they pray them. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says that three different times he prayed that God would remove this thorn in his flesh, whatever that was. Some people think it's a spiritual malady. Some people think it's physical, like malaria. Um, some scholars think it's an issue with his sight, his vision. Because in one of the other epistles, one of these other letters, Paul says, I know you would have given me your very eyes if you could have. Maybe he was speaking figuratively. Maybe he was speaking more uh, literally here. But whatever it was, Paul begs God to take that away from him. And God doesn't for whatever reason. And yet, in this poor in spirit, needed place, desperate place, Jesus speaks to Paul and says, My grace is sufficient for you. No, all your circumstances are not going to be what you want. But my grace, my work in your life, it is enough as you learn to need me, rely on me, depend on me. And then Jesus says these profound words to Paul that I hope we cling to for those of us who feel poor in spirit today. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God's power is not made perfect when we're well off and feel strong and at the, like, our, like our cup is overflowing. God's power is perfected, unleashed, revealed. It moves through us when we have almost nothing left to give. So how can you be poor in spirit and still be blessed? Because God's power is unleashed in our weakness. I love how the message translation puts this verse. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his role in your life. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. Because when you learn to need God more, you rely on yourself less, and you create more space for God to inhabit you. So I want us to take a little bit of time here to just reflect on how you might be at the end of your rope right now. How are you poor in spirit? How in the last seven months or so have you felt at different times at the end of your rope? Maybe you were just tired from all this relational strain. People that you used to just boy connect with, we've taken different sides of these polarizing issues and now it just feels like there's way more tension and way less love in some of our most intimate friendships and family relationships right now. Maybe you're just tired from that. Maybe you're just over social distancing. Even with the mask, I had a horrible night's sleep because I wasn't wearing a mask in my dreams and I was feeling convicted about it. I'm like, come on, can I not even just get dream-free, you know, time without social distancing? 
I'm done with lies and not being able to trust what politicians say. I'm tired of fake news. Maybe for you, you're just overwhelmed by anxiety of not knowing what's coming next or depressed because there's been loss after loss after loss that you've been feeling. If so, Jesus would say, there is still good news for you right now. Because of less of you, there's more room for me. There's more room for me. I personally can't tell you how many times over these last seven months that I have just felt like I've been at the end of my rope. I don't have enough wisdom to make these incredible decisions that epidemiologists, I need to know about that or what they're recommending. I feel out of energy. I feel I'm struggling to care in different ways because every decision you feel like you're, you're making is going to upset somebody or not upset somebody or, or you're just never going to be able to unite a church that you so desperately want to see held together. I've been exhausted from this. I've been exhausted at times where people have just assumed the worst about my heart or my intentions without having the courage to just have a conversation with me. I'm tired. I feel at the end of my rope, and I've cried out many times to God, like the psalmist, how long, oh Lord? I mean, how long can we just go through this? But several times over the course of this praying, I feel like God has showed up, met me right in my struggles in some deep places. I felt like God has started to reveal to me during the tension of a lot of this about where there's areas of misplaced love or wrong attachments or unfreedoms in my soul. One of those is probably caring too much about trying to make others around me happy rather than just doing what I know what God wants me to do and living in the freedom of just following his will. I've, throughout my life, cared too much about trying to please others. And I feel like God is... Certainly created circumstances. Now there's no way on earth I can please everybody. And now I need to be able to live with a new sense of freedom and courage and confidence. I feel like God's Spirit has been empowering me through that weakened place to be able to enjoy more company with Him than I have before. But at these times when I've really felt at the end of my rope, it's reminded me of probably the time in my life that I maybe felt closer to God than I ever have before. Think back to a time in your life where maybe you felt really close to the presence of God. One of these moments was about six years for me. It was after our first failed adoption that we had. And I was 30 years old, and I was going up to meet with a friend who was the chaplain at Gordon College and went in Mass at the time. I was going to be leading a retreat for their, their college, and I was one who really needed a retreat. So after talking through logistics, I asked my friend Tom, where do you think I can just spend some good time with the Lord up here? Is there a place you really like to go? And, and he recommended I go to Singing Beach in Manchester by the sea. Anybody been to Singing Beach before? It's a beautiful spot, and as you get there, they call it Singing Beach because as your hand, at least to my understanding, when your feet hit the sand, it makes this whoosh, this kind of swooshing sound, and it's really quite unusual and really strikingly beautiful. But that day, I just felt so tired, so at the end of my rope that I really couldn't feel much of anything. I just kind of sat there in the staggering beauty and just felt numb. Maybe you felt numb at times, just wanting to feel any kind of emotion and not being able to feel much at all. But I kind of 
decided I had a Bible with me, and against all my seminary training, I had none of my professors looking over my shoulder. I kind of just did a little drop and plop kind of method and said, maybe what, what might God want to play in a little Bible roulette? What might God want to say to me through his word? And that's very much descriptive, not prescriptive. But that day, God used that very imperfect approach to the Bible to speak to me very profoundly. And I happened to have the message version of the Bible, and I turned to Psalm 34, and verse 18 really hit me right where I needed to encounter. God. It says this, if your heart is broken, you'll find God right there. If you're kicked in the gut, he'll help you catch your breath. More traditional translations say God is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit, poor in spirit. And that day, I was, my heart was so broken. I was so exhausted, burned out. But somehow in the midst of that moment, that verse, God just helped me realize that he had been there all along with me. I started to feel like this overwhelming sense of his presence, almost like chills kind of running down my back. Somehow I felt like an empowerment that even though there were tears coming from my eyes and when we let ourselves feel those emotions, I believe God meets us sometimes in those sad moments more than we ever could have imagined. But in that moment there, God became near and clear and nearer and clear to me in this darkened moment than I can really ever remember him coming in a, a moment of, of light or mountaintop experience. Down in that valley, I started to realize how I could connect with God in a deeper way, that he was with me. I started to see how Jesus himself, as the prophet Isaiah says, was a man of sorrows. And that Jesus has gone through everything that we've gone through, suffering for us, feeling isolated and rejected and downcast. And that he could identify with what I was going through. And while Jesus didn't give me any easy solution to my problem that day, he did offer me himself. I didn't get an easy solution, but I got solidarity with Christ that day. And I felt like I knew him more intimately ever since. And the good news that I would say if you are feeling at the end of your rope, if you are feeling poor in spirit, that when there's nowhere else to go, there is God. When there's nowhere else to go, there is God. And as I look back on that day and my life ever since, I can say confidently that wounded egos can become healed hearts. That's a lot that was happening for me. My ego, inflated ego, got burst as part of that failure, a part of that disappointment. But my wounded, wounded ego really became, in God's hands and in his presence, a healed heart that I believe has been able to bring healing to other people's hearts. Yes, it's said that hurt people hurt people, but I believe healed people can bring healing to people as well. And that's what God did for me. And I left the beach that day believing that just like how that sand that sings came from rock that was ground down and weathered and broken, that God was going to make something beautiful out of this pain, out of this disappointment in my life as well. And maybe he wouldn't just make sand out of me, but maybe sand that could sing as well. There's an old sermon by one of my favorite pastors, Eugene Peterson. He defines poor in spirit this way. He says, we empty ourselves of pride so we can be filled with God's spirit. We empty ourselves of pride 
so we can be more and more filled, connected, in union with God's Spirit. In other words, I think these small little deaths that we have to experience can make way for resurrection. And for some reason, I think we have to come to the end of ourselves for some of the most profound work of God to really begin. So we don't have to fear when we come to the end of our rope because as we look to God and not to elections or to anything else to give us what we need, when we look to God at the end of our rope, his real work of spiritual transformation, I believe, can truly begin. And I believe that's what God might want to do for us individually, for us as a church, for us as a nation, for us as a world during this time. I believe he doesn't want us just to go back to what we had before, but he wants us to bounce forward to something better. And if you've ever hit a low moment in your life and you've come back to find a better reality, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. But I believe that if we don't repent, if we don't change the way we've been thinking and acting to rethink our thinking and to see the new opportunity that is before us because the kingdom is here and that, yes, it is possible for us to experience the good life while we're poor in spirit. If we miss this and we don't turn from our wicked ways and pray and seek God's face, maybe like we haven't in our lifetimes or for a long time, if we don't cry out and look to God while we're at the end of our rope, then I believe we will miss the opportunity that God is giving us in the midst of this crisis to connect with him, to draw closer, and to be able to become wounded healers for the good of the world around us here and now. And so no matter what you're going through, Jesus says the kingdom has come. This good news is available to you now. So as an opportunity to help turn this vision into reality, to help us live into the fact that, yes, as we recognize how we are impoverished in spirit, how we're at the end of the rope, for us to recognize how there is still good news and we can be blessed and we can have that good life now, I want us to just try a prayer practice. I want us to try it right here and now and try this throughout the week. So wherever you are right now, I want to invite you just to open up your hands before God now. Try and find your, get into a still position I feel like restless prayer often prohibits us from having the inner calm that God wants to bring to us. And this is no touchy-feely thing. Spiritual practices help the vision that God has put before us to become an actual lived experience in our lives. And this is a practice I want to invite us to, just to open our hands silently before the Lord. These open hands signify our trust in God. Our trust that it's actually true that we can be blessed even when we are at the end of our rope. We feel like we have nowhere else to turn or to go. It shows our desperate need for him. It's like we are the, the, the leper looking for healing or the woman looking for a touch from Jesus. Or a father looking for the healing of his daughter who Jesus did go to and bring back to life even though his timing got interrupted. Take a moment now to recognize how you might be poor in spirit. Where are you burned out? Where are you feeling relational strain, grief or loss or physical ailment or setback or psychological weariness? Let's believe. That when your heart is broken, when you feel kicked in the gut, that God is there 
and that he wants to breathe new life back into your weary soul. Just picture that touch of Jesus coming to you now. Imagine him meeting you right where you are. Or you're broken down, or you're beaten up. And hear him say, you are blessed. And you can be even more blessed right now. And let these open hands now be a symbol of you receiving that good news. And the absences that we feel in our life, may these open hands posture off to Posture us to receive the presence of God, Emmanuel, the God who is with us now. So, Lord, thank you that no no matter what we're going through, no matter what our now is, because you are here, because you are with us, there is good news. And I pray for each and every person, wherever they are now and throughout this next week, that they would draw closer to you, that where there's nowhere else to go, they would find you, God. And may they sense the reality of joy, this pervasive sense of well-being, that even though everything is not okay, that we are well off because of who you are, Jesus, and what you have done for us. I pray all these things for the blessing of our people, our community, our world, and for God's great glory. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen.